we are in this morning in Psalm 8. And I want to start by uh, telling you an old story that I heard about a rabbi that was wandering through the wilderness, just kind of contemplating God's word and thinking about life. And he was in such deep thought that he wasn't paying attention to where he was going, and he got lost. And before he knew it, he stumbled up against a wall. I never knew this wall was here. He looked around and said, I don't even know where I am anymore. And all of a sudden, he heard this voice shout out from the shadows. It was a guard that was guarding this property. Turned out it was kind of a hidden military installation. And the guard said, who are you? And what are you doing here? Well, the rabbi was very startled. He didn't know how to answer that exactly, you know, without telling the whole story of being lost. And and so the only thing he could muster back was a very feeble, what? And and, and the guard said back with, with even more conviction, now starting to sound a little angry, who are you? What are you doing here? And at this point, the rabbi thought for just a moment, and then a smile came on his face. He shouted back uh, over to the guard on the other side of the wall, how much do they pay you to ask these questions? Guard said, none of your business. Who are you? What are you doing here? And finally, the rabbi said, I'll tell you what, whatever they pay you, I'll double it if you'll come to my house every morning and ask me those same two questions. Who are you? What are you doing here? Those two questions might change your life. They they get after something that we all internally struggle with, identity, purpose. Most people will go through their whole lives without ever actually having a solid answer to that question. They pursue stuff, they go after stuff, they know something's missing, they know there's a gap, and I'm not talking about just non-Christians. I'm talking about all of us. We can kind of just float through life without really knowing who we are and where we are going. Psalm 8 is one of my favorite psalms, partly because it's going to help us with these questions. It's going to help us dig into our identity, dig into our purpose. In fact, in just nine verses, this psalm says more about identity and purpose than a dozen self-help books. That's not hyperbole. I believe that. I think we need Psalm 8 today because we live in a world that has entirely forgotten who it is and why it's here. Here's how we're gonna approach it this morning. We're gonna walk through verse by verse. That's how we teach here, is just expositional, explaining the passage verse by verse. And then I'm gonna come back and hopefully save plenty of time at the end for some application, because I think the potential is so rich for us to apply this to our lives. Let's start right at the top, even before verse one, there's a title that we're given for Psalm eight. It says this, to the choir master, according to the Gittith, a Psalm of David. Now, you know, you kind of know what a choir master is. You probably have no idea what a Gittith is. No one knows. <laughs> no, no scholars, you know, they can pontificate. It might have been this, it might have been that. We have absolutely no idea what this means. There are three psalms that have that label on it. It was probably some kind of musical term. Maybe it was a style of music. Maybe it was a type of occasion that it should have been played on. We know the three psalms that have that name or that, that little um, uh, subscript on them are all joyful songs. So that maybe gives you an idea of the style of music that might have accompanied these lyrics. But the important thing thing about the title is who this psalm is attributed to, David. We know quite a bit about David in the Bible. Uh, I want you to think about two things about David as we read the psalm together, as we study it. He was a shepherd in his early years, and he was a king in his later years. Both of those are going to come into play as we walk through Psalm 8. Now let's dive into verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, You have set your glory above the heavens. 
Let's start with the address. O Lord, our Lord. In English, it's a repetition of the same word twice. In Hebrew, it's not. It's Yahweh Adonai. Yahweh, the proper name or the formal name for God. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but God gave Israel his name. Like, I am Rob and you are Karen, whatever your name is. Lord God says, I am who I am. That's essentially a loose translation of Yahweh in Hebrew. We don't even know precisely how to pronounce it. But, but the Hebrew people, when they would read this, so David wrote Yahweh Adonai. The Hebrew people would not pronounce the holy name. They would not say that, that, that name. So they would replace Adonai anytime they say they saw Yahweh. So in this case, it turned out to be Adonai Adonai. And that was translated into English as, O Lord, our Lord. But if you note closely in your ESV Bible or your New American Standard, most versions, they're going to have a cap, all caps, L-O-R-D. That means it's the proper name of God. And then the second Lord is the capital L and then lowercase O-R-D. That just means Lord. So it's Yahweh, our Lord. That's the idea here. Now, the idea of name in the ancient culture was much more than you and I think about it. It was your reputation. It was the renown of a person. It was anything that comes to your mind when you have that person's name mentioned. What do you think of when the name Yahweh is mentioned? This is what David is going after. And he's saying, your name's majestic. All the earth, not just for Israel, Right? He's kind of naming Yahweh as the God above all the other so-called gods. In all the earth, not only that, you kind of look at the parallelism of this passage. He says, your name is majestic in the earth. Your glory is above the heavens. You see the, the parallel structure? In name, glory, earth, heavens. He's essentially saying from the very bottom of the earth, all the way up above the skies, above the heavens, God's name is glorious. God's name is majestic. Interestingly, the ancient people thought of the skies, the heavens, as the dwelling place of all the gods. David is kind of taking a subtle jab at that. He's saying there, there is, is only one God who is above the heavens, only one God who is above it all. It is Yahweh, our God, our Lord, Yahweh Adonai. Let's keep moving, about verse, uh, let's keep moving on to verse two. Here's where he goes next. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Well, that's kind of a strange verse. You know, babies and, and avengers, what, what's happening here? Well, here's essentially what David is saying. God is so powerful that even the smallest sound from the smallest human being, if it's uttered in praise of the one true God is enough to quiet all the enemies of God. It's a very interesting concept. It's the theme that God delights in using the small to conquer the powerful. David knew a little something about that, didn't he? You know, think about his early years out on that battlefield with that sling standing in front of a giant. He was a young, he was probably in his adolescent or early teen years when he confronted that warrior David knew a little something about this theme. I like the way Eugene Peterson paraphrases this verse too. It says, nursing infants gurgle choruses about you. Toddlers shout the songs that drown out enemy talk in silence, atheist babble. Verse three, David's gonna shift. He's gonna shift from talking about the smallest human beings to the grandest thing in all creation. Let's look at verse three. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. 
Pause the thought right there. Let me just say a couple things, then we'll move on and let David finish his sentence. You have to imagine here David the shepherd laying out under the stars, gazing up at night. I mean, he's overwhelmed by this. It's interesting when he thinks about what's the grandest thing in all creation that I can kind of use in reference to. Oh, it's got to be the night sky. He's overcome by that. I love the fact that he calls the heavens the work of your fingers. It's almost like he's saying, you didn't even have to use your whole arm to create all that night sky. It's just finger painting for you, God. Then he completes his thought, verse four. In light of all that, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Uh, There's nothing that will make you feel so small than to lay out under the night sky. Isn't that sort of true? Have you ever actually really seen it? Now, I don't mean, you know, in Williamson County, you know, you, you look up outside your house. I mean, have you ever been out in the country or have you ever been to another country? Or have you ever been in camping or some context where, where you know, there's, there's not lights around, maybe there's not a lot of trees around, you're out in an open field. If, you, if you've ever experienced that, just think about that for a minute and just remember kind of how that felt. It's a sensory experience that goes beyond what you see. You somehow feel the immensity of the universe when you, when you really take it in. Isn't that sort of true? In fact, it, for me, it almost you know, kind of seems to lift me up into it. And you know, all the little things in my life and anxieties and troubles and, and you know, nuances of my little world just sort of disappears a little bit. David was in that moment, either when he wrote the psalm or he was remembering that moment later as he composed the psalm. I think there's no question about that. Now, we've learned a lot more about the universe than David would have known thousands of years ago. And, and what we now know is what's true about the creation up there is even more mind-boggling than David possibly could have imagined. Let me just read you a couple of things. We've learned that our galaxy alone has about 100 billion stars. I, I don't even know how to take that in. I don't think you actually can, 100 billion. Not only that, but we actually now know there, there could be 100 billion galaxies or, or more. You know, you do the math on that, what's 100 billion times 100 billion? You know, it's just a whole lot of zeros. But I heard someone say it this way that, that helped me, 10 billion trillion. Think about a trillion, although you can't really, but just try to. Think about 2 trillion, 10 trillion, 100 trillion, 1,000 trillion, a million trillion, a billion trillion, 10 billion trillion stars. I did some research. Are there more grains of sand on the earth than stars? Guess what the answer is? Stars. That's just crazy. Last month, astronomers announced the discovery of uh, two new planets that they got excited about because they're two of the most Earth-like planets that have been discovered. What's even more great is they're really close to us. They're they're in our own uh, galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy. In in fact, not only are they in the Milky Way, but they're very close to us. They're only 12.5 light years away, 12 and a half light years. So if you could go the speed of light, it'd take you 12 and a half years to get there. The problem is, If we all could board our fastest manned spacecraft ever built to date, do you know how many years it would take us to get to these planets that were just discovered? 335,000 years on our fastest spacecraft. I want to walk you through a little video that we came across this week as we were researching this. We'll put it on the screen. It's going to help us kind of put some perspective on this and 
I may not be a good narrator because I don't know all this is, but we know what that is, right? That's Earth. Let's start zooming out a little bit and you see Earth and now you're starting to see our moon. You're gonna be able to see some other planets in the nearby asteroid, apparently. There's some planets and you kind of get our solar system and, and uh, other planets as well. And our sun is just kind of fading into the background as we zoom out. Look at all those other stars. Now you kind of start to see some scope and perspective. We're still in the Milky Way galaxy. Other stars, billions of stars in our own galaxy. And there it is. There's the Milky Way. There's our little home. Wow, there it goes. We get further and further and further and further and further and further. And we don't even know what comes beyond that. It goes and it goes. So here we are on this tiny little bitty planet, a speck of dust spinning around one little star out of 10 billion trillion. What is man that you are mindful of him, David asks, and the son of man that you care for him? This is the right question to ask. Who are you and what are you doing here? Now, verse four is not just a question, though. David's actually making a statement of amazement, a statement, actually an expression of wonder. So look at the parallelism in these lines. So man matches up with son of man. That's just two ways of talking about the human race. All right, so women, this is not exclusive to you. He's talking about the human race here. What is mankind and the son of man? All of us, you know, sons and daughters of, of mankind. What, what are we? And then the parallel here is you're mindful of him. In other words, you think about us and you care for him. In other words, he cares for us. So he's saying God thinks of us and when he thinks of us, he cares for us. Isn't that amazing? David David did not, could not get over that. And all the vastness up here, we're so puny, we're so tiny, but you think of us. And when you think of us, you have caring thoughts. Uh, this, if you will take it in, will change the way you relate to God. You are tiny, and yet he cares. Now, we know that David is saying something amazing about human beings when we get to this very uh, next line and crowned him with glory and honor. What is mind your mind, man, you're mindful of him, son of man, yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Now, let's talk about this idea for a minute. I want to start actually by talking about the heavenly beings. Who are the heavenly beings? If you are reading an NIV or other translations, it'll say angels. You've made him a little lower than the angels. If you're reading a New American Standard or some other translations, it will say God, capital G. You've made him a little lower than God. And if you're reading ESV or other translations, it'll say heavenly beings. What gives. <laughs> Why three different translations? It's one Hebrew word, right? Yes, it is. It's the Hebrew word Elohim. Now, Elohim is a very interesting word. It can be translated as God, but technically it's a plural word that means spiritual beings, spiritual beings. So in this context, the way that ESV has translated this is you've made them lower than the heavenly beings. I think angels also works really, really well. You see, when God created the universe, he made more than just him, you know, himself who was self-existent. He didn't make himself. He made more than just what we experience here on earth. He made physical beings. We know about them a little bit from the Bible. 
Angels are Elohim. They're described as Elohim. Sometimes, however, the word Elohim is used of the one true God, Yahweh Elohim. So it is confusing when you start translating these. But I think the ESV probably gets as close as we can, the heavenly beings. In other words, those spirit, spiritual beings, angels that live up with you. By the way, demons are simply angels who are in rebellion against the true Yahweh, against Yahweh Elohim. So demons are Elohim, angels are Elohim. And so what David is saying here is, of everything you've made, you've got yourself that's above all, then you've got this class of spirit beings, angels and, and, and rebellious angels, and then us. You've made us just a little bit lower than the Elohim. Isn't this interesting? I, I think we're lower in the sense of our capacity. We're lower in the sense of our power. But then he goes on to say this, you've crowned him with glory and honor. Who does glory and honor belong to according to verse one? The God, the one God. And yet he has chosen to place a crown of glory on mankind, on human beings. David is marveling about that. It brings to mind the creation narrative in Genesis chapter one, doesn't it? When God says, let us make mankind in our own image. That's the crown of glory that David's referring to. We're made in the image of God. That makes us unique. In fact, David's about to go on to describe something else that sounds a lot like Genesis one and two, and that is the commissioning that God did once he created man and woman in his own image. He commissioned them to govern over the earth. Take a look at verses six to eight. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. The key phrase in these three verses is in verse six. You've given him dominion. That whole phrase is one Hebrew verb, it's a little bit hard to translate, but it means, you know, to, to commission, to rule, or to govern. You know, you've, you've commissioned us for governance. Now, notice that this is not the idea that God gave us all these things on earth for us to possess, but it is the idea that he gave these things for us to govern, for us to steward, for us to be caretakers of. So sometimes these verses are misinterpreted as, well, here we go. We're at the top of the food chain. All this other stuff's for us. We can do with it what we choose to do with it. That's actually not what David is saying. That's not what Genesis 1 and 2 teach either. What it is saying is we're created in the image of God, crowned with his glory, and placed on earth for the purpose of exercising God's authority over the rest of the creation. That to me is a mind-blowing thought with very deep and powerful implications. Now contemplating all of this leads David back to a place of worship and praise. And so he ends his psalm the same way he begins it, very appropriately. Verse nine, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I think he goes back to worship because ultimately worship is the true purpose that everything was created for. Stars, angels, humans, even all the creation that we are called to govern. It's all there to worship. Now that's Psalm 8. 
in a, a quick nutshell. Now we're going to dig in and apply it because I think there's a, a lot of very practical things that we can grab onto this. And I want to take us back to our questions. Who are you? And what are you doing here? This psalm teaches us three things, three principles that form a type of three-dimensional grid that you can use to triangulate your identity and purpose. And let me explain what I mean. The first is gonna be something that has to do with our relationship with God. The second, something that has to do with our relationship with other human beings. And the third, something that has to do with our relationship to the creation around us. God, other humans, the rest of creation. Let's start with the first and most important relationship. And for each of these, I'm gonna give you a statement. And then I'll put all three statements on the screen at the end. Here's the first statement. This is what Psalm 8 teaches us about our relationship with God. Here it is. We are under God, yet deeply loved by him. We are under God, yet deeply loved by him. There's, there's a lot of power in that combination. Let, let's talk about it a little bit. This is the very thing that David could not get over. I mean, that's what this psalm says. And, and everything, the vastness, the beauty of the heavens and all of it, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, crowned him with honor, etc. It wasn't just the smallness of mankind that shocked David. It was the grandeur and glory God has bestowed on mankind in light of our smallness. We are under God, no question, yet deeply loved by him thought of, cared for, important. Think about how confused our culture has become around this. I want to talk about that from two angles. Uh, most people today have dismissed God. Um, even if they actually believe he exists, which, by the way, many people don't, but, but even many who do, dismiss him in this sense. They, in principle, elevate themselves above God. So this plays out in a dozen different ways, but they're, they hear something from the Bible or they're reading the Bible. It's just like, I don't like that. That doesn't sound like the way I'd want God to be. It doesn't sound like, doesn't sound right to me. Can't be true. And there's a lot of other ways it it plays out. I think as a human race, we prefer to think of ourselves as autonomous beings accountable to no one other than our individual selves. If you don't see that in you, I don't think you're in touch enough with your own sinful nature. We want to see ourselves as autonomous beings. We're, we're not under God. Maybe he made us, but we're not really responsible to him. We're not accountable to him. We don't really belong to him. He doesn't own us. Isn't that what freedom is all about, et cetera, et cetera. What a disaster this mindset has created. And by the way, this is not just a modern thing. Like this is a Genesis 3 thing, right? Adam and Eve, I want to be autonomous. I know God can't tell me what to do. And then, you know, all throughout the biblical history. And now we're just sort of seeing that the, the fruit of that instinct in human beings has just continued to be devastating and devastating and disastrous, etc. Now that's one angle of it. People don't want to be under God. There's another angle of it too. On the other hand, many people who do believe in God don't have a problem seeing themselves under God, but they perceive him to be so distant and so unconcerned that they don't actually believe he knows them and cares for them. Do you see how Psalm 8 
pushes against both fallacies. So, oh, you're under God, all right. And he cares for you. He thinks of you. He loves you. You've got to have both of those things in order to be rightly grounded in your relationship to God. Psalm 8 says you're under God, yet deeply loved by him. Now, if you want to understand your identity and purpose, and, and, and don't we all, don't we all, you have to start with your relationship with God. If he's your creator, that means something. It does mean that you're not autonomous. It does mean that you're obliged to him. Yes, it does. We don't like this language. It does mean that we are subservient to him. You see, I, I, I put that word in a thesaurus to try to come up with something that had a little less edge because that has such a negative connotation. Every word that was spit back to me has a negative connotation in our culture. Isn't that interesting? Now, you were created by him and therefore you are not your own. That's what scripture would teach us. That's what common sense teaches us. If we believe in a creator God, you belong to him, therefore are accountable to him. And yet, he thinks of you with fondness. Do you see? Do you believe? You have to see yourself both as very, very small in comparison to God and yet very, very important in the mind of God. You have to see yourself as both of those things if you want to have a right relationship with God. This is, by the way, the essence of true humility, which is another word in our cultural context that's gotten a bad rap. Humility is not a bad thing. Humility is a God thing. It's a godly trait. And by the way, humility is not thinking of yourself less than you are. Humility is thinking rightly about yourself. Who you are compared to God. Tiny and loved, you see. Now, I have to take you to Jesus at this point, don't I? He's what makes it possible for us to be in this kind of relationship with God, you see. Now, think about the way Jesus embodied these principles. He submitted to the will of the Father with every breath, including his last. He submitted to the will. You know, oh, Philippians 2 teaches us he purposely put himself under the authority of the Father, even though he was equal as part of the Trinity. He purposely put himself underneath to submit to the will of the Father as a man, as a God-man. And yet he was simultaneously secure that the Father was well-pleased with him. You see how Jesus carried both of these? And then he lived the life we couldn't live. He died the death we deserved. And now because we're in Christ, we also can say, I am tiny, yet I am loved. That's where you have to start if you want to understand your true identity and purpose. Now we move on from there. That's our relationship with God. But Psalm 8 teaches us a lot more than that. It also teaches us about our relationship with other human beings. And here's what it says. We are equal to all other humans. We are equal to. So we're under God, yet deeply loved by him. We are equal to all other humans. Well, where do we see that? Verse 5, human beings... Not certain human beings, human beings are crowned with glory and honor. This matches Genesis 1. 
God made our race, or the human race. He made us in the image of God. Therefore, each is worthy of honor, dignity, and respect. Think about how far we have strayed from that truth in the way we think about people, the way we talk about people. What would it look like for us to interact with one another in ways that reflect this primary truth that, that every person is created in God's image. By the way, I'm not saying that all viewpoints are equal. I'm not saying that some people, you know, are, aren't rebelling in various ways. I'm not even saying that we shouldn't disagree and stand for things that we believe deeply. I'm, I'm saying, yes, all that is true, but can we do all of that in a way that we would look at other people that are different from us or look at other people that are like us but disagree with us and say, there's an individual made in the image of God that is worthy of honor, dignity, and respect. I think that would change the way we interact with our spouses, our friendships, our children, our neighbors, our coworkers, our politics, our social media. Could go on and on and on and on and on. We as the church are called to model this. Think about the life of Jesus. I'm gonna keep coming back to him. He took this idea even further and he said, listen, I haven't come to be served. I have come to serve. And so if you're gonna follow me, that's how you're gonna glorify God. So I wanna put a, a second line on this idea. And, and here, here's how I'd say it. We are equal to all other humans. Psalm 8 says that. All are crowned with dignity and honor. Yet we choose to serve as followers of Jesus. So, so here's the statement. We're equal to all other humans, yet we choose to serve. This is an important part of your personal identity and your personal purpose as a human being because you were made in the image of God and God is a self-giving God. If you're made in his image, you're designed to be self-giving, not in an unhealthy way, in the best of ways, just like Jesus was. You reflect the image of God by giving yourself in service to other people. This should be the hallmark of Christian community. And sadly, it is not. Not by and large. There are wonderful exceptions, even in this room, of course. But by and large, we have deeply missed the mark in following Jesus and making ourselves servants of other human beings. So far, here's what we've learned. We are under God, yet deeply loved by him. And we are equal to all other humans, yet we choose to serve. Third, and finally, we are over the rest of creation, yet as caretakers, not consumers. This is clearly spelled out in verses six to eight. And God put all, all this un, un, under the feet of mankind. And, and again, we talked about this, but it, it's not for us to gobble up selfishly. It's for us to steward and cultivate. By the way, gardening was not a random vocation doled out to Adam and Eve in the garden. You know, gardening, is, gardening is sort of the prime vocation for all human beings. He put us in a resource-filled earth and he says, cultivate it, create it, make beautiful things, make delicious things, make amazing things, but cultivate it to my glory. Cultivate it in a way that would praise and honor the creator of all these resources, you see. Now, Again, we've obviously done a terrible job of this over thousands and thousands of years of human existence. Uh, you might think about it this way, and, and I think this is true. We've stepped out of our created purpose as cultivators and established instead an identity as consumers. 
We've become more consumers than cultivators. Now, am I saying we're not supposed to consume anything? No, we need to for our own flourishing and our own sustenance, etc. But by and large, the, the call of the gardener is to cultivate the earth. Here's what's amazing about Jesus Christ. Let's come back to him again. God sent his son as a human being. Why? Among other reasons, to reestablish God's intended order for his creation. Mankind ruling over the earth, extending the father's rule. Think about the way Jesus exercised his authority over the natural world. Think about his miracles. Jesus did not do miracles in order to selfishly consume and prove his value and worth and gobble up things around him. Jesus actually did miracles for the opposite reason, to bring creation back into rightness and wholeness. He healed diseases. He calmed storms. He multiplied bread and gave it to people that were hungry. You see what this is? Jesus' miracles give a preview of the whole world rightly related to God. Jesus' miracles were a taste of God's rule mediated through human leadership. And it took a God-man, yes, to do that because we couldn't, we wouldn't, we didn't. You see how these pieces fit together. Now, let's pull these three themes together and talk about you for a few minutes we have left. Who are you and what are you doing here? Finding your place in the world starts with rightly understanding these three relationships. Who you are in relationship to God, who you are in relationship to other people, who you are in relationship to the stuff around you. Let's put these three statements on the screen and we'll interact them a a little bit longer. Psalm 8 gives us a three-dimensional grid. We are under God, yet deeply loved by him. Do you believe that? We are equal to all other humans, yet choose to serve as an act of our will. We are over the rest of creation yet as caretakers, not consumers. Now, these are big ideas, like big principles. Like, I don't know that that tells me who I am and what I'm doing here. This is where the hard work of application comes. I I can't apply this for you personally. These truths, if you think about it, on one hand, apply to every single human being, but each of us lives out our purpose in the context where God has uniquely placed us in unique families, unique vocations, unique neighborhoods and friendships and communities using unique talents and skills and experience. There's a sense that God has said, look, big picture, these are the things I put you on the earth for and I've made you, I knew you in your mother's womb and I put you on this planet at this hour for a purpose that is unique to you. Only you can live out these three principles in your world, in the context which God has placed you. No one can do this for you. No one else. I believe the degree that you understand and apply these three truths to your own specific life is the degree that you discover and live out your identity and purpose. I believe that with all my heart. And I will also acknowledge it takes work, it takes digging, and I want to encourage you this week to meditate on these things. Where where have you gotten out of kilter 
in this three-dimensional grid. Your relationship with God, the way you think about and, and, and interact with other people, or, or, or the way that you interact with the stuff. Where, where have you gotten most misaligned? And let this psalm bring you back. Let this psalm ground you. Spend some time in prayer over this this week. Spend some time just meditating on it. Ask the Spirit to speak to you. Take some action. Do some journaling. Put this to work in your life. Now, I want to give you one last thing. We'll just leave this up here a little longer. I want to give you one last thing. I hope you notice the common thread in each of these. It's a person. Jesus is the only one that, that lived these out perfectly. You can't. You can't. He did. We're going to pound that into you every single week. Now, the author of Hebrews actually grabbed onto this idea. Jesus fulfilled Psalm 8. The author of Hebrews, so Hebrews 2 verse 9, it says this, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. He's like, by the way, this Psalm is being fulfilled in Jesus. He made a little lower than the angels because Jesus chose to come down. Isn't this fascinating? We see him crowned with glory and honor. Hello, Psalm 8, because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Guys, death is more than just physical death. It is that, but it's also separation from God, separation from your true identity, separation from your true purpose. Jesus tasted that so we don't have to. And then Jesus comes and he says, you will find in me true identity. You will find in me true purpose. And once you're joined in me by faith and my spirit lives in you, then we will work these things out together as we go. That's how the Christian life works. You have the spirit of Christ in you if you've put your faith in Jesus. His life, not yours. His identity, his purpose, that now can become yours as you follow him. So what was David's response when he contemplated all of this? Well, it was worship, wasn't it? The Holy Spirit in him stirred him to worship. That's how the psalm ended. That's how we will end our service this morning in worship. The Spirit has spoken to us through the same words he breathed out through David thousands of years ago. And so we will respond in worship as well. I want to invite you to do that by closing your eyes. We're going to do something that's a little bit different this morning. It's not going to get weird or anything like that, but I want to put you in a posture where I think we may be able to worship from, and, and I'm going to take this straight out of our text this morning. And so if you'll just kind of close your eyes and just imagine this. I want you to imagine where David likely was when he composed this psalm, or at least as, as where he was where his mind was as he thought about this. He, he was probably under the stars. He would have spent a lot of time out there. So I want you to imagine yourself in a place like that, laying outside under the night sky, staring up into the heavens, the vastness, complexity of stars and planets and galaxies that you can't even comprehend. That, that sense we talked about already, I want you to kind of go back there of how small you are. A tiny little speck in the immensity of the universe. And now I want to encourage your mind to go to the God who created it all, the God whose name is majestic and whose glory is above the heavens. Think about how everything in creation, all of it, was made to worship him. Galaxies, stars, the planets, all that you know is up there that you can't even see it with your own eyes. 
And then things around us that we see more often, mountains, oceans, creatures, even rocks, wind, waterfalls, and every human being, including you. And I want you to remember that although you are indeed a tiny part of God's creation, his word says that he is mindful of you personally. And through the faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you've been made right with God. And, and if you haven't, you can right now by putting your trust in him. All this is his work, not yours, just as everything in all creation is his work, not yours. And finally, like David, I want to invite you to allow the spirit inside of you to stir you up to worship the one true God. God of creation, there at the start, before the beginning of time. With no point of reference, you spoke to the stars and fleshed out the wonder of life. And as you speak, a hundred billion galaxies are born, and the vapor of your breath, the planets form. If the stars were made to worship, so will I. I can see your heart in everything you made Every burning star, a signal fire of grace If creation sings your praises, so will I God of your promise, you don't speak in vain, no syllable empty or void. For once you have spoken, all nature and science follow the sound of your voice. And as you speak, a hundred billion creatures catch your breath, all moving in pursuit of what you said. If it all reveals your nature, so will I. I can see your heart in everything you say Every painted sky, a canvas of your grace If creation still obeys you, so will I
above us and around us and like David find ourselves in the middle of it we can't help but share his thought who are we and yet and so father I do thank you for the deep deep love that you have for your children 
we accept that love through Jesus Christ and we acknowledge the presence of his spirit in us as we go about the work that you have called us to do. And my heart is for our body that we would know the answer to the questions that we have asked this morning, that we would do the hard work of making that specific in our own lives and that as we go out of this place in a few moments that we would know that through the spirit we are being led to be witnesses of the one true one who lived out the full purpose and identity of human beings. May we bear his name well. In that name we pray, amen.